guys. So um, every year we try, my little family tries to get away from Cape Town just the middle of the year. Uh, you know, we don't want to leave in December. <laughs> well, I leave Cape Town in December. The middle of the year we try to break the winter, so we drive, seven of us in a car, across the country. And we try to get to KZN. Last year we did it, we were so excited, we got there, and then all hell broke loose and we drove back. They drove back. Quite an experience. This year there was no civil war and uh, <laughs> it was wonderful. Um, we did have a few humorous experiences and um, they mainly have to do with some of my incompetency. Uh, uh, we were driving to Bloemfontein. We needed to get there in the evening for we were booked to stay there. And just before we left the car service, the guy says, Be careful of this clutch, you could go. Okay, now years ago I had a clutch go, you put your foot in the fuel and the car stops. It doesn't take anymore. And so I was a bit nervous about this. And just as we're coming close to Colesburg, the it's not happening. So, uh, you know, it's jerky. And I'm like, the clutch is going on. Sunset, we pull into Colesburg, engine one stop. And then I told Judy, cancel Bloemfontein. We're going to spend the night here in this car. Um, and then I have another idea we can get towed to Bloemfontein. Luckily, Archerance agrees to pay the 6,000 Rand to tow our car to um, Bloemfontein, the sky drives us in the back of the truck and there's seven of us in the front of this truck without seatbelts and this guy driving, swearing like a crazy man on his phone and we took the truck with my car in the back of his truck and then at the end he gets a little chatty and he says, so, tell, me about this, tell me about this clutch slip so I talked to him and he says, that doesn't sound like a clutch slip um, and he's leaning quiet for a while, he says, when last did you put fuel in? <laughs> I misdiagnosed my situation. <laughs> the irony is, I managed to sneak into Colesburg engine one stop. And he says, why do we fuel it? I said, this car's going to be serviced on for days. They can like, steal my fuel. I'll put fuel in. Let's see, we got there, we could have put fuel in and kept driving. Anyway, we made memories. Yeah. 
Don't respond with hatred or bitterness or revenge or retaliation. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12 says something similar. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave for root for, for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And what that's saying is that nobody gets away with anything in God's moral universe. Yeah. Everybody faces God one day and gives accounts. So somebody's wronged you. Don't worry, God's going to get it. If they don't repent, you don't get it. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Jesus makes this point, and then master storyteller that he is. He's always painting these word pictures. He gives four brief illustrations to show how this principle of loving non-retaliation shapes our response to those who wrong us. So first illustration, he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. See, a slap to the cheek in that culture uh, was a serious insult. It was a, it was a, it was a, a wounding to your ego. The fact that it's your right cheek means it was a bad hand. And I suppose if somebody slaps you with either hand, it's still an insult to them. <laughs> it wounds your ego. It doesn't just give you a red cheek. And everything inside of you, you want to slap back. Jesus says, don't pay insult for insult. Next illustration. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. So the idea now is somebody's falsely accusing you. And they say, hey, you owe me money, they're making a false charge, and they want your shirt. Uh, nowadays, we've got lots of shirts. In those days, clothes were red. <laughs> you, didn't have, you didn't have a pile of different clothes, the average person. And a coat was most valuable. And Jesus said, that's somebody who's suing you. They actually just want your shirt. And so you give them the shirt. But then you notice that they're not equipped for winter. He's saying, can I give you my coat as well? Third illustration. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. In those days, the Roman soldiers could walk up to any person and say, you carry my baggage. And legally, you had to carry it for one mile. So you carry this Roman soldier's baggage because you have to. At the end of one mile, as the Roman soldiers are about to take his baggage back, you say, hey, I can do another mile if you want. You look like you're struggling. <laughs> See, again, love overcomes evil. And then this one, give to the one who asks you. No one likes to be accosted by demanding beggars. And a common response is to retaliate by ignoring them and their demand. But Jesus urges us to love even the beggar who accosts us with their pleas. Instead of retaliating, the wrong, per the wrong person continues to love the wrongdoer. And in each case, in each of these pictures Jesus paints, good overcomes evil. See, the principle is loving non-retaliation. And it's important that these four things, we don't take them as laws. They're illustrations. I mean, there are many times when the loving way to respond to a wrongdoer is to exercise self-defense. I remember when I was... Um, a new Christian, and I read this verse, don't respond to the evil dirt. I was surfing in Durban and I rode into another guy's surfboard. Okay, so now that's the situation. Anyway, this one, older guy on the beach, he catches me and he says, You rode into my board. I said, I don't have any money. And then he says, Not a problem, you just give me your surfboard. Okay, I wanted to give it to him because I remembered this. Like, you gotta take my board. My friends intervened and said, Don't give him the board! Uh, there's time for that cheek. You, you, you know, it's not a law. 
Sometimes it's okay to confront or press charges against someone. Um, you find the apostles doing this. You find Jesus even protesting against being unjustly treated in John 18. There are times when it's right to say no to the mark. The point is that when people hurt us, accuse us, exploit us, or put us out, we don't respond in an aggressive, hateful manner, but we respond in the opposite spirit, in one of genuine mercy and love. This sounds an awful lot like weakness. But it's not. It's a form of strength. In the words of the famous preacher from over 100 years ago, Charles Spurgeon, he says, there will be times that God allows our enemies to be a hammer and us to be the anvil. See, in these times we're not cowardly doormats. We're resilient angles of love. Why would you offer the other cheek? What does it do? Somebody slaps you on the face and then you show them the other, the other, the other side. So you, you're displaying your deep security in God. You're displaying your love for the person. It says to the person, hey, despite your painful insult, I'm still secure in God and I still love you. And I won't stop trusting God and loving you, no matter how much more you insult me. See, in this way, love overcomes evil. It's not an act of kindness, it's an act of strength. I think of evil as the frozen heart. Evil hearts lead to evil deeds, so a person wrongs you maliciously. In that moment, we're in danger of that evil action against us, their frozen heart spreading into us. You've got this pure-hearted person, they get totally you know, treated badly by someone, the greatest temptation of their life comes upon them. The evil can spread from that person to you. Jesus says, don't let it. But you don't respond passively, you respond proactively. You say, I'm going to keep loving you. And instead of letting your frozen heart come to me, I'm going to let my warm heart go to you. I'm going to respond in a loving action in the hope that goodness can spread to you. Jesus is saying that love is more powerful than evil. Then the, the next uh, way of Jesus is to love and pray for those who make our lives hard. This is 43 to 44. He says, you heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So interestingly, Moses had said as much. In Leviticus, he instructs the Israelites to love their neighbor. And in fact, in Deuteronomy 7, they taught to seek the destruction of neighboring tribes. So you're only meant to love your neighbor. But remember the law of Moses was a temporary law that guided this newly formed political nation in its early survival. But Jesus says, no, 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 I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, Jesus makes it clear that his disciples are going to go way beyond the teachings of Moses by loving, not hating their enemies. Life under Jesus outstrips life under the law of Moses. Who are our enemies? Who are our enemies? And Michael Eaton, one of my favorite biblical uh, scholars, he says, They are those who cause us suffering, oppose us, block our way to achievement or fulfillment, who slander or criticize, or seek to get us into trouble, who are rude, vindictive, sarcastic, brutal, or malicious, or who in rivalry want to take what is ours. I can summarize all of that. Our enemy is the person who makes our life hard. You might not think about them as my enemy, but I think we all think of people who make our lives hard. How would it find capacity to love people who make our lives hard? Jesus tells us the secret. 
We're going to, we need to go to the Father in prayer and we pray for them. And as we do this, the merciful and loving heart of God permeates into our hearts. See, it's not in ourselves, but in prayer for our enemies that we find the capacity to love them. We don't pray for them because we love them. And so as we pray for them, we start to love them. Praying for your enemies is a step of faith. Every bit is courageous as Peter stepping out of that boat and attempt to walk on water. It seems impossible to feel any affection for this person that's made us miserable. But then you pray for them by faith. And you pray blessing over their life. As I've been um, preparing for this message the last two weeks, I've thought of some people who've made my life hard. I've woken up in the morning and I pray for them. And I pray God's blessing on their lives. And in fact, as I seek God, I thought God said, you don't need these people's blessing, but you need to bless them. You don't need these people's blessing. You don't need them to be nice to you and kind to you. It would be nice. But you need to bless them. You don't need their blessing. You've got God's blessing. But you need to bless them. So, so what are we learning? The way of Jesus is loving, non-retaliation. Firstly, secondly, the way of Jesus is to love and pray for those who make our lives hard. And then the third and the last one, the way of Jesus is to love those outside of our group. To love those outside of our group. And we're looking at verses 45 to 47 for this. Verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus is saying, look at the Father. He loves the whole world. Both those who accept his grace and those who haven't. And Jesus uses a masterful illustration. He says, you see on that hill there? There's a person who's known to be kind and good to everyone and there's a person who's nasty as hell. And look, there's a cloud, it's raining. Look, it's just raining on the good person. It's dry. It's not raining on that person. No, no, it's raining on both. Oh, now the clouds are clearing away. Look, the sun is shining on the on the good person. Oh, but look, it's shining on the miserable person too. Father loves the whole world. And he loves those who don't deserve his love. Well, I'm sure you can think of lots of people who you feel don't deserve your love. <laughs> and those are the people who make life hard. For you, or people that you've just in your mind, they are unlovable. Well, of course they don't deserve love. But you don't love them because they're lovable. You love them because God is love. You see, we are meant to demonstrate the character of our Father. He reigns and He shines down His goodness on the undeserving. And we are privileged to be called sons and daughters of God, representing His family likeness. And in fact, Jesus in verse 46 says that there will be a reward. The reward really is the pleasure of God. God smiles on His child that reflects His character into a grace-stripped world. Verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? As I was preparing, I noticed a phrase that I somehow never really honed in, honed in on before. Your own people. If you greet only your own people, I call that groupitis. <laughs> Loving only your own people. 
It's the most natural instinct in the world to find some people that are your crew, yeah. who, uh, you're, that, who you, you love, because they love you. But actually the heart of it is just self-preservation. The person who's completely isolated in this world is all alone. We all need some people that are our people. It could be your family, it could be your church, it could be your race group, or your political party, it could be your suburb, or, uh, those who share your ideology or your religion. And what ends up happening is that in your mental universe there's my group and then there's everyone else. And what social media especially has done is it's made the world more divided and polarized than ever. So that people who, who, who have diametrically opposite ways of interpreting reality, we believe that they are monsters or they, they're so lost. We dehumanize people who see it different than us. We demonize the other. This is what our culture has taught us. Entire culture, we've been baptized in, in othering people, believing our group is superior. And of course, the algorithms are, are helping us. Algorithms are these impersonal programs that are under the social media platforms that have just one goal keep you scrolling. Because if you're longer you aren't here, the more the, you know, the advertisements are, are paying. So you can keep scrolling, it's just the endless scroll. And what the algorithm works out is that you don't even know the truth. You just need to get stirred up emotionally. So it figures you out and holds your attention longer by giving you the misinformation and the emotionally charged content that entrenches you further in the rightness of your viewpoint and in the monstrosity of those who see it differently. The polarized society is causing us to dismiss entire segments of society. It's destroying the social fabric of our lives. I mean, there's marital divorce, but there's also the fracturing of long-held friendships, workplaces, parental and even sibling relationships. You know, groups of friends that have been divided, families that have been torn apart by a different response to COVID and the vaccine and the masks and what to do. We see the widening of ideological and racial fault lines that continue to fragment society. And what is so tragic is how many people who call themselves Christians contribute to this demonizing of other groups of people. And all the while Satan is getting his way. See, Satan's effort is to cause a follower of Jesus to hold other groups that you're meant to love. No, you hold them in contempt. And you withdraw from them into your ever smaller circle of sameness. And all that's happening is that you're shrinking your ability to serve and reach many of the people God intended your life to touch and bless. And Jesus asked a potent question. What are you doing more than others? If the most natural thing is to you know, greet your own people, you're a follower of Jesus. You should be different. You greet not your own people. You love not your own people. You see, the gospel enables us to love all people, especially our enemies. And especially those who are not our own people. Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word perfect, uh, it conjures up the wrong idea in our mind of you know, a person who is legalistically faultless. But what it actually means is it speaks about a person who is complete, who is whole. We're all growing up. 
And if you're growing up right in the kingdom of God, it's because you are becoming a person who's able to love all kinds of people. It means to be complete, to be mature. This all-round maturity. Every, every area of your life consistently and deeply pleasing to God because of your capacity to love. But how do we become perfectly and unconditionally loving like our Father? Well, it's not just by following His example. Okay? Well, look how good God is. Try be like that. Look how good Jesus is. Try be like that. You don't just watch God do it and then try do it. You experience God's love for you. You bask in God's perfect mercy and love towards you. And that starts by contemplating the cross. I mean, all of us have wronged God. And yet His mercy and love for us has found a way to overcome our evil. See, the cross of Jesus is the angle that breaks the hammer of your evil. You contemplate the cross and then you also revel in the Spirit. Who falls like rain on the dry ground of our hearts. Who comes like sunshine warming the frozen hearts. In society we're splintering into ever smaller groups. The gospel you know, breaks the wall between all these groups. But still the gospel does divide the human race into two. 1 Peter summarizes it perfectly. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not yet received mercy, now you have received mercy. The gospel does divide the human race into those who have received God's mercy and those who are yet to receive God's mercy. And once you receive God's mercy, you are united to other people who have received God's mercy. You are the people of God. Mercy is so powerful. Mercy is treating someone infinitely better than they deserve. And think what mercy does in your heart and mind. Firstly, it keeps us free from pride. Right at the heart of group practice is the self-righteousness inherent in the group. We're the group that's better than the rest. We, we you know, the, we, we earned what we've got. But the Russian dissident Alexander Soltzhazen wrote, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and it cuts through the heart of every group. See what God's mercy does is it says, you need mercy and it keeps you humble. I'm so sinful that Jesus had to die on the cross for me to be forgiven. That comes me to the dust. You contemplate the cross, it keeps you humble. I'll tell you what else mercy does. It helps you get free from bitterness. It helps you get free from bitterness. When people have hurt you, when they've wronged you, you, you everything inside of you, 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 you want to treat them with contempt. Or, when people have wronged you, it's so, if, if they treat you with contempt, it's so easy to destroy you. Yeah. I've got a friend who is right at the front of social justice in South Africa. And she had uh, she did a little TV presentation. And I was, Virginia was on Twitter. Somebody had taken a screenshot of this person who truly is a, a subject expert in the subject. And uh, at the bottom it said, um, expert in inequality in South Africa. And this person taking a screenshot and then about a hundred people just dissed this person. They knew nothing about her. 
And they said the nastiest things about the way she looked. They immediately just put her in a, a corner. And these were really educated people making these comments. And I just thought, my goodness, I have received a little bit of that kind of treatment at times. But, but what to do when people treat you so terribly, it's, it's, it can destroy you. It can destroy you. And what God's mercy does, it gives you a status in God that cannot be taken from you. God will sometimes allow you to feel judged and misunderstood because it will drive you to His acceptance. Um, for years, I uh, for years I used to say to Julie, I, I said I can hardly find a person who doesn't like me. You know, some people have the ability to make people like them. But I was one of those people. I just let me stand in front of them all. They'll like me by the end of it. <laughs> I read all the parts about persecution and I was like, I don't know about those verses. I haven't experienced that. And then I changed my theology about women in ministry. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that it was such an important subject that uh, I needed to raise the issue of the body of Christ. And most people didn't want to hear what I had to say, but they really, you know, they put you in a corner. They, they really figured you out. It's such a painful experience to be misunderstood. And it's such a crucial experience in my relationship with God. So important to go through times when you are misunderstood, where people don't like you, because the gospel shows you you didn't need it in the first place. The gospel drives you to live in God's acceptance. In God's acceptance. And then I'll tell you what else God's mercy does. is It, it keeps you from condemning others. It keeps you from condemning others. Uh, when I was driving home, we were driving home, Jeannie's on Twitter reading me articles and... Uh, you know, America is completely divided on issues of sexuality, transgender, abortion, there's everything. It's such a divided land. And, and, and there's one Christian guy who was making comments about these people are monsters. I don't know how we can live together with them. And then I just got thinking about Jesus on the cross praying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. So even if you're right, you never dehumanize the person who sees it different. You never call them monsters. The, the fact that mercy has come to you means that every single person, even a person who is who might be wrong in what they believe, wrong in what they do, they are within reach of God's mercy. The good news of the church is the mercy of God. There is no one beyond God's reach. The most despicable person in the first century was the Apostle Paul. Killing innocent Christians, pursuing them to destroy them, and God chooses him. And he says that he was a chief of all sinners, and God chose him to be a person who would become an object of mercy. He received mercy. And that meant he could look at every person in the world, and he believed that God could reach them too. It's so important that in Second Church, we are building relationships with people everywhere, trusting God for their redemption. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who have received God's mercy and those who could receive God's mercy today. He has not treated us as our sins deserve. It says we receive and revel in God's love. 
that our lives are enabled to become a riverbed of His love to other undeserving people. See, having been swept into God's love by the cross, surely we can also love our enemies until we have fewer and fewer enemies and more and more neighbors. Let's pray. Why don't we stand up?